A guy and his wife wake up one Sunday morning, and the man's not getting ready for church. So she asks him, and she's getting ready, and he's not getting ready, and says, hey, what's going on? And she, he says to her, well, I'm not going. And he says, well, why not? And he says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why not. One is that the congregation is cold. Two, nobody there likes me. And three, I don't want to go. And so she responds to him and says, I'll give you three reasons why you should go. The first is, is that number one, the congregation is warm. The second is, there's a few people that like you. And number three, you're the pastor. So get dressed, because you're going. And you know that, I don't know why, but that silly story always reminds me of this fact, that we tend to find what it is that we're looking for. We tend to attract what it is that we are. And so I want to, I say that to say this, because I want to ask us a series of questions for us to maybe think through as we get into our study this morning. And that is this, is that if, our church were just like you, what kind of church would it be? If our church were just like you or if our church were just like me, I mean, would it be a loving church or would it be a cold church? Would it be a worshiping church or would it be a I'm folding my hands and I'm not going to look like I'm enjoying this at all church? Uh, would it be a church full of people who serve or would there be no service that takes place at all? Would it be a church that was generous or would it be a church where no one gave and no ministry took place? Would it be a church full of newcomers because those who were there were inviting people based on what God was doing in their lives? Or would there be, would it be a place where there wouldn't be any newcomers because no one was getting invited? You see, I'm asking these questions because in the, in the, the study before us, and in the two chapters before us in the book of Revelation, Jesus is asking these questions. He's going to give these churches that we're going to look at, seven in particular, a report card. He's going to give them a progress report. He's going to give them an evaluation to show them, to let them know how it is that they're doing. You see, most people get evaluated in their career. They get evaluated by their supervisor, and they get told basically three things. They get told what they're doing right, they get told what needs to improve, and they get told where it is that the supervisor wants them to be, where he wants to get them, he or she wants to get them to. And see, the church needs to be evaluated in the same way. Why? Because there's a place that God wants the church to be. There's there's attributes that God wants the church to have. And see, if the church isn't doing its job, fulfilling its mission well, then listen, changes need to be made. Now, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at these seven letters written to seven churches. And as we do, I want you to know that we're going to look at it really from four different perspectives. That there's four applications, if you will, that we're going to look at, four different ways, four different layers as we peel the onion, so to speak, that we're going to be able to see these churches. If you're taking note, you'll see them in your uh, the message notes that we gave you, and I hope you're taking notes with us. But the first is this, that there is a near application. What do I mean by that, a near application? That's a word that theologians use to describe that these were actual churches during that period of time, and there were issues that Jesus wanted to address to that particular church at that particular time. That's the near application. There's also, number two, the common application. That is that they are... 
that these letters address common issues that churches in general face. There's also, number three, a personal application. What I mean by that is, is that we can read these letters and that they can apply directly to our lives individually and personally. And then fourthly, and perhaps most interesting, there's a prophetic application. The prophetic application is that what we're going to learn as we go through these churches is that each church represents a period in church history. And so what Jesus is going to do as he goes through all seven of these churches, he's going to lay out church history in totality, past, present, and future. He's going to tell us how it's going to go down as he tells us how it went down for those in the past and then those that continue on into the future. The other thing that I find interesting about these churches is that the very name of the church, the very name of the city in which Jesus writes to these churches speaks about the very issue that he wants to talk to them about. What do I mean? Well, this morning we're going to look at the church at Ephesus. The name Ephesus is a word in the Greek language that means darling. It means darling. It means beloved one. And why is that important? Because the issue for the church at Ephesus was one of love. And so as he writes to them, it's like the very name of the church speaks of the very issue that he wants to talk to them about. And so if we're going to look at the prophetic application as we springboard into this, this period, this church represents what scholars would call the apostolic age. It represents a period in church history from about 33 A.D. to right around 100 A.D. What we call the apostolic age, that's where the time when the apostles were on the scene, when they were preaching and teaching and leading churches and starting churches, and many people were coming to know Jesus in those early years. Now, but something happened in with these early disciples. Something happened with these early churches. Something happened with these early believers. You see, these early churches, these early believers moved from a place, they started in a place of passion and zeal, but somehow they moved from passion to function. Somehow they had all the right motions, but were lacking the right emotions. And so what Jesus does is that he begins these letters, especially to this church, to address this thing that's taking place. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say that they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience, and you've, not, and you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, if you... Pause there and give me your attention. Let me um, start this way. Can I ask this question? How many of you are married? Ask that. Oh, look at that. Several of many of you. All right. So then you're, you'll be familiar with this. Um, do you remember when you first started dating? 
Do you remember like when you first started dating and all of those things that now you find completely annoying about the person you're married to, you found cute? You know, like the, the fact that, you know, when he would sit in front of the TV all day on Sunday to watch football, you would say this when you were dating, like, isn't he so passionate? Now you're thinking like he's a lazy bum who won't do anything, you know, but then it was like he's so passionate. You know, when you first started dating, she would buy all these clothes as you guys were going out and you would think, man, she just wants to look good for me. And now you're thinking she's going to put me in the poorhouse with all these clothes that she's buying. Right. And, and so there's there, there's something that happens in, in the very beginning. And, and, and have you noticed that that in the beginning it's, it's new, it's exciting. But then somewhere, somehow, sometimes a shift can take place. A shift can take place as we move from a place of passion to function, as we move to a place of having the right motions and lacking the right emotions. You see, because sometimes we might even be doing the right things, but we're not even doing it with the right motivation anymore. You see, that's what happened to this church in Ephesus. You see, they, they started out with all of the passion and zeal that a person could muster, but now they were just on cruise control. In fact, Jesus commends their work. And that's what he says. He says, I know your work. Uh, the Greek word there is the word ergon, where we get our word energy. He says, I recognize the energy and the labor that you're using to, that you're expending for, for, for me. I, I get it. I, I appreciate everything that you're doing. And now, why is it that he commends them? Do you, do you understand that the early church has, did something that us, that the church in the 21st century has been unable to do? The church in the first century with no technology was able to take the gospel to the four corners of the globe, to the known world. They were able to take the gospel in, in Colossians chapter one. Paul writes these words. He says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Now, I want you to think about this. They lacked technology, yet they made up for it with passion. They made up for it with excitement, with zeal, with a mission and a calling. And even though they didn't have email, they didn't have TV, they didn't have satellite, they didn't have computers, they didn't have any of that. And yet they were still able to get the gospel to everywhere in the globe, in the known world at that time. Listen, they were doing great work. They were doing incredible work. And in fact, Jesus, I love that he just says, I know. I know your work. I know your labor. I know your patience. You know what that means? That means that nothing that you and I do for God goes unnoticed. I know sometimes we might think that. I know sometimes it might think that we're doing the right thing. That, you know, at work that we're... You know, we, we're doing the right thing. We think, man, nobody's noticing. This is, this is a good thing that I'm doing because I'm a Christian, but no one is ever going to know that it happened. Can I just tell you something? God knows. You might be serving here. You know, there's guys who get here at 5 o'clock in the morning to get this whole stage and this whole place set up for when we come in at either 10 or 11.30. And I, I'm sure that there are times when these guys wake up at 5 o'clock to get here at 5.30 or 6, that they, that they think... Does anybody even know what I'm doing? Can I, can I tell you this? God knows. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, the Bible says. You see, there's, there's, we, we might serve in like the nursery. We might serve in the children's ministry. And we, might, and we might say this. I mean, 
I mean, think about it. There's people that aren't in church this morning. They're serving in our children's ministry because because of two things. We want to create an adult environment here so that we can speak at an adult level. And then at the same time, we want to create an environment that's age appropriate in our children's ministry so that they can learn the scriptures and they can draw close to God, hearing a message at their level. But the question might come up sometimes like, does anybody even know what I'm doing? And the answer is yes. Why? Because Jesus is saying here, listen, I know. I know your work. I know your labor. I know your patience. And there's nothing that you and I do that's going to go unnoticed by God. In fact, Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And I mean, if you think about something as simple as giving someone a cup of water and say, well, why do you do that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. And so I just do these acts of kindness for people intentionally. Well, he says that even giving someone a cup of water is something that's not going to go unnoticed. The other thing that Jesus commends them for, and I, I love this, he commends them for their biblical purity. Because it says this, he says uh, that there have been people who have shown up, who have called themselves apostles, called themselves teachers, called themselves men from God, but they've taught things that are contrary to God's word. And the Bible says is that you just you haven't even put up with that. If a guy shows up and they say, I've got something from God and it's not really from God, it's contrary to the scriptures. He says, we just you just got him out of there because you didn't want to infect what was going on, the, 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 the purity that was happening biblically. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because the Apostle Paul was the one who started the church at Ephesus. And after he started the church at Ephesus, he turned it over to Timothy, who was his protege. And if you've been with us for a while, we studied 2 Timothy as he's writing to him. And so Timothy then takes over. Well, what we find out later on through history is that after John is released from the island of Patmos, after, after he finishes writing Revelation as a, as a very aged man, he spends the last years of his life pastoring at the church in Ephesus. So this is a church that had incredible Bible teaching. They had incredible pastors and teachers. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us. And yet what happens is, is that while they had so many qualities that showed them what it is that they understood the scriptures. They had all the right things going on. They had all the right programs. They had all the right activities. But here's what they were lacking. They were lacking in love. And that's why Jesus says in verse 5, he says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. You haven't lost it. You've left it. What does that mean? It means that they somehow left that passion, that zeal, that devotion for the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah explains it this way, speaking of the people of Israel. He says, the Lord gave me another message. He said, go, shout, to the shout this message to the people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago. How you loved me and even followed me through the barren wilderness. In fact, if you continue reading, this is, it speaks to this. It's like this honeymoon type of language that God is speaking and you see, it was this moment when everything was new and everything was exciting and, and all of this was taking place, but something happened. Something happened and things started getting a little stale, a little old. Things started getting, you know, you started looking around thinking, is this all there really is? 
And why did it get this way? Because they weren't intentional about cultivating, developing, and deepening their relationship. And listen, the same thing can happen. The same thing can happen in your life and in mine. In, in our relationships, it can happen. Especially if you're someone who's been married for a long time. I mean, that, that can happen so easily. Um, and, and the reason is, is because sometimes we feel like we're supposed to have the feelings that we had when the relationship first started. Like, when my wife and I went on our first date, I mean, I was nervous. I mean, I had butterflies in my stomach. I mean, I barely ate, and that's very odd for me. And, uh, you know, I mean, I stumbled over my words. And, you know, my wife and I have been married now for 12 years. We dated for four and a half before we, we got married. So we're talking about like 16 and a half years, right? Now, I don't get butterflies anymore, like when we sit at the dinner table. Like, if I did get butterflies, like, oh, you know, you know, I mean, could you imagine how weird that must, you know, I mean, it's like, if I'm still getting butterflies, listen, that's not nerves, that's an illness. And I need to see a doctor. All right? But, see, but here's what happens. What happens is, is that because we don't feel like those initial feelings of euphoria, we start thinking that something's wrong in the relationship. And what happens many times is we start saying, well, well, I love this person, but I'm not in love with this person anymore. And so we go on to another relationship, and here's basically what we're doing. We're looking to trying to recreate the, the feelings of euphoria when a, when a relationship began. And so then when that feeling kind of goes away, we say, well, I've got to end this relationship because I'm, I'm not feeling those feelings of euphoria anymore, so I have to move on. And that's why a lot of people are very good at beginning relationships, but not very good at following through with relationships, because what they haven't learned are the skills... Um, in, in relationships to begin to deepen relationships that it's like you don't have to have the euphoric feeling anymore but love can actually deepen to an even greater degree than you felt in the beginning because that's what maturity in a relationship is all about you know like I said I, I, I don't get butterflies anymore when I hold my wife's hand like I did the first time I held her hand I don't you feel the butterflies anymore when I kiss my wife on the cheek like I first did when I kissed my wife on the cheek. But I can truly say that I love my wife more today than I ever have. You say, well, well, well how is that? Well, the reason that it is is because you've just got to be intentional in the relationship. You've got to be intentional and say, well, I'm not going through the, through the motions. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest in the relationship. And listen... This is what can happen for us as Christians. As Christians, what can happen is, is that we start out in our relationship with God, and then our relationship with God starts trying to get stale. And then we start thinking, as things kind of get dull, we start thinking like either something's wrong with me, or something's wrong with God. Or something's wrong with my relationship with God, and I don't really know what's going on. And so what we have is this problem, and we say, well, you know... Are we doing the things that we did in the beginning? Because it's not really about saying, do I have the same feelings I did, the feelings of euphoria as I had in the beginning, but am I doing the things that caused my relationship with God to deepen? Can I ask this question? Um, now, how many of you have been Christians? And I'm not, I'm not talking like Christians, like, oh, I did First Communion when I was seven. I mean like Christian in the sense of like I got serious with God, I prayed to receive Christ, I started reading the Bible, started attending church. Like, how many of you would say, like, maybe that was, like, less than two years ago? Okay, so how many of you say, like, less than five years ago? You got serious. All right. 
How many say it was less than 10 years ago? How many of you say it's less than 15 years ago? All right, how many say more than 15? Still like half the pans haven't gone up, so when they wake up, they'll answer. Um, but here's, here's kind of what happens. And this is the thing that's really important. Is that, do you remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? And once again, I'm not talking about, you know, well, I was baptized as a baby or whatever. I'm talking about like when you got serious about your relationship with God. Now here's, I, like, I remember when I first became a Christian. I was 19. And I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me in my brother's kitchen. And God began to do a work in my life. And, and let me tell you what happened. Like, I, I, do, do you remember this? I mean, do, do you remember like the first time you prayed and God answered your prayer? I mean, that was like, that was an incredible thing. Like you didn't tell anybody else about it. You just prayed and then God spoke and God answered and God showed up in an incredible way. Or maybe the first time that, you know, you shared your faith with someone, like you just told them your story of how Jesus had forgiven you. Like, I mean, do you remember, like, you were nervous as all get out. And I mean, you're just thinking, like, am I even doing this right? Am I, you know, is this person going to, what's going to happen when I share this with them? I mean, do you remember the first time that you opened the Bible? When you became a Christian and, and you prayed and asked God to speak to you and you were reading something and there's like God spoke to you and you're like, this is unbelievable. And, and, and it just kind of created this, this hunger. Do you remember the first time you went to church and you studied God's word and God spoke to you? Like you just, you started understanding the scriptures like never before. I remember the first time I went to church and, and, and I heard the scriptures taught. And I was so moved. I actually went, this is now, I'm dating myself here, but I went and I bought the cassette because this, we're kicking it old school back then, uh, with cassettes. But I remember I bought the tape. That was, and it was on a, a midweek service. And I remember that I went on Sunday and the pastor was teaching this passage in Revelation 2. And I had been a Christian for then about a week, and so I didn't, it wasn't like, you know, you've left your first love. I was just like figuring out who God was. But it was an amazing thing. I mean, I remember just learning, I mean, I was just a sponge in, 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 the, in the beginning, you know? Like, I remember, do you remember this? I remember the first time that I, I was in worship. I'd been a Christian for maybe a year. And I remember seeing all these people raising their hands. And I remember thinking, like, what does that even mean? I'm like, you know, because when someone raises their hands, that means it's a touchdown or the field goal was good. Right. And so I'm like, what does that even mean? Well, I started reading the Bible. And you know what I found is that when people were going to pray or they were going to praise God, they would lift their hands as a sign of respect, as a sign of adoration, as a sign of worship to God. And I remember when I went in, when I went into a church service and the first time I lifted my hands and just like this moment of surrender to God. And man, it was just this, it was incredible. And yet something can happen. And for some of us, we went from passion that there's all these firsts. And then once there's no more firsts and there's no more seconds and thirds, we kind of move from passion to function in our relationship with God. And it's like, well, we still come to church, but it's when it's convenient. And certainly not when it, we feel like it's, there's like a drop of rain because we wouldn't want to endanger our lives in that way, uh, you know, and, or, you know, well, we still read the Bible, but we don't have that sense of expectancy anymore that God's going to speak to us. I mean, we pray because we're told to, but we're not really thinking that God is going to answer. You see, that's what Jesus means when he says, listen, you've left your first love. 
He's saying, listen, the passion has left. The passion is gone. And what he does for us is that he shares with us the steps of regaining the passion that we once had. And he says it in verse 5, but I'll read it to you and then we're going to talk about these three steps that he gives us. He says this in verse 5. I put this in your notes. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So what are the steps? And here's what it is if you're taking note. He says, remember where you lost it. That's the first one. Remember where you lost it. Uh, when my wife and I were engaged, um, she was uh, the first part of our engagement, she was going to school in Tallahassee. My wife, uh, Carrie, got pneumonia, and um, she needed to come home. And so I called her one morning because we had talked the night before. She said she wasn't feeling well. I called her uh, the next morning. I mean, she was just like delirious. I mean, she was really, really sick. So I hopped in my car, my uh, 1988 Chevy Cavalier that was infested with cockroaches, which is another story altogether. Um, but they only came out at night. They were nocturnal roaches. Um, I remember hopping in that car, driving 450 miles that day to Tallahassee, I got her and her sister, put their luggage in the car, turned around, came home 900 miles in one day. My friends, that's love. Now, here's the weird part. We get married, like the first year of our marriage, right? Like I would drive, I drove 900 miles when we were engaged. We get married and before we're laying in bed, before we go to sleep, she turns to me and she says, would you get me a glass of water from the kitchen? And you would have thought she asked me for a kidney. You know, I'm like, oh, you know, and so... Now, and it's like, where did we go? Like, how did we get there? How did we get from I'll drive 900 miles for you to now I won't go nine feet to get you some liquid? You know, how did did we get there? And listen, here's here's how we got there. We got there because we started functioning. And we started, we kind of just forgot about being intentional. And I remember laying in bed after that. And saying to myself, how could I have allowed myself to get here? And it's not like our relationship was in trouble or our marriage was bad. I mean, we, were, we were doing fine. But I just started thinking, like, how did I get here? How, how come I'm not the guy who's willing to jump out of bed to get, to get her something? And then, and I remember that day I made a decision to say, you know what? I'm never going to be that guy who thinks like, you know, can you get me a glass of water is the biggest deal in the world. In fact, I'm going to go to the other extreme. And you know, a lot of people live their lives right there, just functioning in their relationships and functioning in their relationship with God. And listen, if you want to get back to the place of passion, here's what we have to do. The first step is you've got to remember where you lost it. Remember where you left it. I mean, you got to think, like, where was the last place that when you were, as a Christian, that you were really excited about your faith? If your faith is stale, you've got to think to yourself, when, in, in my memory, when was it that I remember feeling really, really close to God? And if that when, okay, now you've got that in your mind, what was I doing at that time? You see, the very first step is remembering how it used to be. Not so that you can grow depressed and say, man, look at the good old days. But instead, so that you can say, I remember where, I, where it was great, but I know where I am now and I never want to be here again. Do you know why? Because there is great power in dissatisfaction. 
Dissatisfaction with the present is a wonderful catalyst for change in our lives. Because the only time that we ever really change is because of dissatisfaction. We're dissatisfied with our circumstances. We're dissatisfied with our results. We're dissatisfied with our current situation. And that becomes the catalyst for us to change because we envision a better future or we remember a better past. And that becomes the thing that causes us to change. But the first step is I've got to remember where I lost it. The second thing I've got to do, if you're taking note, is you've got to repent of what you left it for. You see, Jesus says, remember from the height of which you've fallen and repent. Now, the re- now, repent is a word that gets a really bad rap in our culture. And it's a shame because it's actually a very beautiful word. Because, uh, and I know that people tend to use that word and swing it like a hammer, uh, you know, in, in religious circles or and, and that sort of thing. But here's what the word repentance means. It comes from a Greek word, metanoia, which means this, to change your mind. It's basically, it's a word picture that talks about a person who was going down one road, but then he stops, he changes his mind, he turns around and goes back on the path that he knows to be right. And that's really what repentance is all about. But listen, if we're going to get back to the place where we have a passionate relationship with God, we've got to turn things around and we've got to remember where we lost it. We've got to turn around and get back to that place. And we've got to repent of whatever it is that we put in first place. You see, Jesus says, you've left your first love. And if I've left my first love, which should be God, and I've I've left that, that means that I put something else in first place. I've made something else my first love rather than God being my first love. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then I've got to change my mind about something. And I've got to replace that with putting God in the place that he should be. I mean, we do this all the time with so, so many things. I mean, we can do this with a career, that we put that in first place, and uh, God takes second or third or fourth place, and then we see things begin to change. We can do this with relationships. I mean, I, I hear about that. I ask about someone, hey, where's so-and-so? Oh, they started dating this guy. Oh, they started dating this girl. And then I start seeing them, hey, how you doing? Oh, not so good. I went through a bad breakup, but I'm here. God... I'm back with the Lord. And then I don't see him for a while. Hey, where's so-and-so? Well, they started dating this person now. And they just kind of get on this, this, you know, this kind of yo-yo kind of thing going on. And, 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 and we forget. You see, and, and the problem is, is that when we don't take a step back to think about it and say, now what exactly am I doing? What I'm realizing is we don't realize that we're kind of swapping out what should be in first place for something else that shouldn't be. You see, relationship never works when I put it in the place that God should be. But when I put God in first place, then my relationships work better than if I didn't in the first place. So if I put something else first, I've got to repent of that. I've got to change my mind about it and say, I'm going to go back the way I came. I'm going to go back on the path that I know that I'm supposed to be. And put myself in a place. And put God in the place that he should be in my life, which is first. And then he says this, number three. He says, repeat what you used to do. In, in, in that passage in, in Revelation 2, 5, he says, and do the first works again. Do the first works again. Do the things that you did at first. Repeat what you used to do. Uh, here's what happened in, 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 my, in my revelation that I had in my first little apartment in, in my marriage. When I realized, like, I, I, I would drive 900 miles, but now I won't drive 9 feet. 
I mean, I had this, this turn in my mind that I said, I'm going to do the things that I used to do in, in my marriage. I'm just going to go out of my way to make our marriage not about me, but about my wife. And I, and I, just, started, I just started doing things. Like, um, even to this day, my wife doesn't put gas in, in her car. I always put gas in her car. Not because she's incapable, doesn't know how to work the little thing. I mean, she's very capable of that. But I just say, you know what? She doesn't need to put gas in the car. That's kind of a lowly task, so I'll do that. I don't know if my wife has ever touched our garbage can. Why? Because I tell her she's not allowed to take out the garbage. That's something that I do. Why? Because that's a lowly task. I'll take out the garbage. She doesn't have to worry about that. And I I don't say that because that's what you have to do. I say that because it's simple things that that I try to do because I say I, I want to have the same kind of passion that I had even when we, when we first started dating. Not just the euphoric feelings or whatever, but something that has real depth in our relationship. Now here's what's important for us. What's important for us is, what were the things that you did when your relationship with God was at its best? When you think back and say, I'm remembering when things were great in my relationship with God. When I was excited about my faith, when I thought things were amazing, this is what I was doing. Can I just encourage you in this? Do those things again. You say, well, what were you doing? Well, man, I was, I was praying. I was reading the Bible. I was involved in a growth group. And I was watching my faith soar to levels that I had no idea it could go. And, and so what happened? Well, I got busy and then I just kind of lost interest. And then, well, and then we are where we are now. And we say, well, do I really want to be here? Or do I want to be, get back to the place where I once was? And if you do, listen, what Jesus says is you've got to remember, repent, and then repeat. Repeat the things that you did when your relationship with God was at its best. I know this, that one of the things that happens when a person's relationship with God is at its best is that they're obeying God. I can tell you that much for sure. One of the reasons why we emphasize baptism so much here is because that's like, in a young Christian's life, that's like the first opportunity that you have to obey God. And it's a simple commandment. Jesus says for, for, for someone who makes a decision to follow him to be baptized. And the reason, why we think it, uh, the reason why we emphasize it so much is because this is what I know to be true. When a person says, well, I don't really think that's important for me, you're already creating a pattern of disobedience uh, to God in your, in your life. Well, that's not really what I mean. I just don't think, well, if you don't think that really matters, and that's a command of Jesus. He didn't say it was a suggestion or a good idea. He said it was a command. But so if I decide that that's not for me, then all these other things that God wants me to do that he says are important in my life, I start taking those under advisement instead of taking them and saying, well, no, this is really important for me. It's something that I need to do. Even if I don't understand it, I need to do it because he told me to do it. And so if that's the case, Because if I don't make an intentional decision that I'm going to obey the things that God tells me to do, I will end up stale in my faith. It's just the way that it works. But instead, if I remember what happened where I was in my relationship with God initially, and then I'll turn from whatever it is that I started, and I'll begin to repeat doing the things that I did when things were great. I'll see a revitalization take place in my relationship with God. You know who understands this better than anyone I know? My daughter. My daughter is too, and she understands this principle better than anybody. 
Now, here's what I mean. My daughter's favorite day was her birthday. Um, it was great. I mean, it was great. We had a big party. She had this Mickey Mouse clubhouse party, and all, even the plates were shaped like Mickey Mouse. The napkins were Mickey Mouse. It was pretty exciting. And um, then she had, we got her a special Minnie Mouse shirt that she wore, and then when she went to sleep, she had this Minnie Mouse pajamas that she had. It was really exciting. All of her friends came over. Her family came over. It was really fun for her. But you know what my daughter has, has decided is that every day is her birthday. Every day is my daughter's birthday. In fact, every time if we go to a restaurant or we watch something on TV, when she hears the happy birthday song, she thinks they're singing it to her. So what she does is that when she hears the happy birthday song, she goes like this because she's two and she hasn't figured out how to go like this yet. So she goes like this, you know, happy birthday to you. So she does it because I'm two years, two years old. Well, she got extreme the other day because um, I was at the office, but Carrie was with her and, um, you know, she wanted to sing happy birthday. She made Carrie and, and her put on the little party hat because she has a couple party hats left. And so they had to both put on the party hat and Carrie had to sing me a happy birthday. And then after they sang her happy birthday, Mia turns to Carrie and says, Mommy, Mia's cake. Because if it's her birthday, of course, she should have cake every day. And uh, she's very smart. And, um, and, and yet, so here's the thing that's amazing to me. She goes back to, when was it best in her life? Oh, my birthday. So now she's saying, I'm going to make every day my birthday. Because I got gifts, and I saw my friends and my family, and I got cake too, and they all sing me the song. And so, and, and, and the idea is this. I mean, think about it. She totally gets this. She's remembering when it was best. She's repenting of any other day that's not as good. And she's repeating over and over what happened on that day. She's trying, to, she's trying to continually relive it. Now, here's the question. How about you? I mean, what day was it best in your relationship with God? What day was it there a day that was just like a, a, a better than any other? And see, how would it be? How would your life be if you went back to that kind of zeal and passion and excitement that you had when your relationship with God was new? If you went back to that day and you started doing the things that you were doing on that day, you know what would happen? I believe it would change everything. And so here's what I want to do, because we have a few moments left. I'm going to close in prayer. And I want to give a call to commitment. And most of the time we give a call to commitment for people who maybe have never made a decision to follow Jesus. But I want to give a different kind of call to commitment this morning because i know that there's a lot of us who are christians and yet there's a lot of us who are christians but we're kind of far from god right now we're not in the place of where we were some of you here and you're like man i just became a christian this i'm i'm still like in the euphoria phase that's great some of us are here and our relationship with god is really stale because we've put something else first and the message of the church at Ephesus is the message that God is speaking to you and I, which says maybe you've left. And if you've left your first love and you want your relationship with God to be everything it can be, it's time to come back. It's time to remember from the height in which you've fallen and repent and do the first works again. Let's pray together. And God, I want to thank you so much for 
your faithfulness and for your promise to us that if we will remember and repent and return, that you'll accept us and receive us and you'd even be willing to start over with us. So Lord, thank you for never leaving us, for never forsaking us, but for always offering the opportunity for us to return. And so God, for those of us that are here, that we need to take that step of commitment. We need to recommit ourselves to you and renew our relationship with you. Lord, do a work in us. May today be the day. May this prayer echo the sentiment of our hearts as you work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.